I think one of the big problems with both pedestrian and cyclist safety on the road is that we just don't have enough data of what's happening. Generally, you know, obviously fatalities on the road are reported and get reported on. But unfortunately, close calls and, you know, minor injuries, there just isn't enough. Welcome to The Bike Lane. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. With us today is Clark Haynes, founder and CEO of Velo AI. Clark is a robotics expert with over two decades of experience developing cutting-edge autonomous vehicles and robotic systems. He's developed wall-climbing robots with DARPA, traveled to Fukushima to study robotic applications for disasters, and tested robots running around the desert with the intelligence community. Clark led a prediction team at Uber's Autonomous Vehicle Division, as well as led the Carnegie Mellon team that completed the DARPA Robotics Challenge. He holds a PhD in robotics from Carnegie Mellon and studied his undergrad at U of M. Clark, welcome to the bike lane. Thanks, Jake. It's a pleasure to be here. So I am very excited to get another startup founder back on the show. I, I love our, our guests that we've had, but it's been a minute since we've had someone actually on, like, I don't want to say working in a garage, but like, you know, just the real startups, like coming after real innovation. So let's start off first with your background and how you got into your role. I mean, like we're talking DARPA, intelligence community, uh, AV work with Uber. I mean, some pretty wild stuff. So how'd you end up making, getting into a bike safety startup? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of funny stories and a lot of different threads that all came together. I started doing robotics research and development work actually back when I was in Ann Arbor, working first as an undergrad in a robotics lab. And, you know, we were doing things of adding computer vision to small robots running around, having them chase balls, like things that were state-of-the-art 20 years ago, but went on, did grad school, did more crazy running robots, worked with a bunch of awesome people, including the folks at Boston Dynamics, and found myself doing larger and larger robotic systems. But one interesting kind of thread during that whole time is that, you know, I've always been a bike commuter. That that goes back to, you know, growing up, of course, in the day and age in the 80s and 90s where you could just bike everywhere. But then in college and grad school and my first jobs, always kind of chose to structure my life around being able to have just a few mile commute to get into work and do it somewhere where there was enough bike infrastructure that it made sense. And it's funny because I've made career decisions where, you know, I turned down job offers because I was like, oh, that's going to be really hard to live where I want to live and bike there. So there was this funny kind of, you know, transition going from job to job, but keeping kind of true to my purpose of like, yeah, I want to be an urban lifestyle bike commuter. So that's really the, the robotics side of things. And, you know, maybe I can just jump into the autonomous vehicles in 2015. Uber came to Pittsburgh saying, hey, we're going to set up our entire autonomous vehicle research division. And there were a bunch of us working in robotics research in Pittsburgh at the time. And it was a, a, an opportunity to kind of really have an industry shifting change, not only for autonomous vehicles, but also for Pittsburgh. This was really the biggest thing to happen to Pittsburgh's robotics community almost ever. And for me personally, my most recent project had been working on like a disaster response humanoid robot, this 400 pound robot with arms and legs that could go around and like turn valves. And again, motivated by the disaster at Fukushima, Japan. 
And so it was a, a little bit of a you know shift going from working on humanoid robots to working on autonomous vehicles. But again, that vein of like, hey, how do we make our cities better for bicyclists and pedestrians? That's the thing that really brought me to the autonomous vehicle and ended up doing a lot of really awesome work, learning from some really amazing people there during my time. Out of curiosity, how much did VRU safety come in to your work at Uber or just in the industry or for AV? I mean, I'm just kind of curious how the industry looked at VRUs when you were there a while ago. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was absolutely top of mind and, you know, our, our approaches always had to make certain we were incorporating more and more advanced tech to tackle the different scenarios. That being said, you know, Uber definitely has a, a black eye in that realm. And I'm, I'm referring to the, the 2018 crash in Tempe, Arizona, where a pedestrian walking a bike across the street uh, in, you know, it wasn't the dark of night, but it was evening time, dark out. Uh, they were actually hit by one of Uber's uh, autonomous test vehicles. And I think that also was a wake-up call to the organization of like, what, what does operational safety, what does safety culture mean? And, you know, obviously that was uh, an absolutely terrible thing to happen. But one of the positives that came from it was really enacting a large amount of change. So for example, uh, about 5% of the company went in and we did an internal review. And I was one of the three representatives from the autonomy side of things. And we reviewed everything, not just about this crash, this incident and why it happened, but about just like, do we have a, a safety culture? Silicon Valley, of course, likes to encourage companies to move fast and break things. And that doesn't necessarily work with autonomous vehicles. And you're still seeing kind of repercussions of this today. But actually, like I'll say, you know, from that point onward in my autonomous vehicle career, I was spending probably 90% of my time working on VRU related items. And really asking these questions of what insights can we draw from the statistics? How can we test complicated machine learning models and build the confidence to, to satisfy the safety case to deploy these things in the real world? So during that process, and I'm curious how Velo AI got started. So talk to me about the, uh, the progress on... You're, you're spending that significant amount of your time, like 90% plus of your time working on this to like, what's the segue from I'm doing this for Uber doing AVs over to I should do Velo AI and have the Velo AI mission. Like, I'd love to hear that, that transition piece. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, like so many others, I think very early in the pandemic, you know, I was just questioning. What, what am I doing? What are we doing? Is this the right path forward? So this was actually in early 2020. I was thinking a lot about the direction that autonomous vehicles were going, which is still progressing really, really well. And they're going to arrive. I think it's just still longer than anyone expects for them to arrive at the scale where we're really going to see societal change and we're going to see, you know, saving of lives. That's so far away just because we're still in the very slow part of hmm. the, you know, hockey stick growth. 
the question I asked myself is, okay, I, I started working on autonomous vehicles to in out of a desire to make our cities and streets safer for pedestrians and bicyclists. Is there something different that we could be doing now that would have impact sooner? Um, that was coupled with, again, early days of the pandemic. The, the roads and streets were totally empty. I was riding my bike a lot because it was like, you know, one of the few things that you could you could just go do mm-hmm. and not have to worry about anything. And in Pittsburgh, we have really fantastic river trails, but there are only a few of them. And I got mm-hmm. really bored. And so I actually started riding on streets and roads a lot more than I'd ever really had. And that was different than like bike commuting. When you bike commute, you have your like one to five routes that you know, you know, every single pothole, you know, every single stop sign where you need to be worried about cars. And this was different. I was exploring and, you know, it was really thrilling to kind of get out on the bike a lot more. But then the roads were empty, but the few cars that were out there were just crazier. And this is one of those things that's been borne out in the statistics that drivers actually got worse in the pandemic. People were driving faster because there was nothing to slow them down. Like traffic actually has a very positive thing is it slows people down Mm -hmm. and makes streets safer for bicyclists and pedestrians. Yeah. So I was left kind of thinking, hey, what I really want, I want that perception system, that prediction system, that risk estimation system, you know, like what we would have developed for our, our autonomous vehicles, but I wanted it on my bike. And that's really where the desire for what we're doing at Velo AI came from. What's the mission? Our mission is to apply tech for the safety of all road users, regardless of your mode of transport. Uh, we're, we're basically taking a lot of algorithms and systems and sensors that you would find in commercial uh, driver assistance systems or autonomy systems and we're packaging them up really, really small so that we can deploy them in new ways that people haven't tried before. What, what's the ideal cyclist customer for your first product that's been backed? Uh, and you guys you guys had a, um, uh, was it Kickstarter you guys did to get things rolling? Yeah, we haven't done done any crowdfunding. We probably will in the future. But yeah, we've just been beta testing with users and kind of doing this customer discovery. That, mm. that you're referring to. And I, I think the, the thing we've come down to is we're really building first for the urban utility commuter and bicyclist. This is the person that's using their bike, you know, two, three, four times a day, really committed to the cause, values their safety more than anything else. You know, they don't have the option necessarily to just go for a recreational ride on a river trail or go out to some really rural location where you're not going to find cars. So the, the biggest benefit that we can deliver is for these urban bicyclists. Got it. You know, it's something I just randomly, as you're, you're talking about the experience you had during the pandemic, I never thought of this until just this moment that we always say cars, maybe we should be switching the, the narrative to say drivers. So it's, it's not cars that are the problem. It's the drivers perhaps. So now the cars and the technology in the cars can help. And it sounds like we'll, we'll get into this a little bit about technology on infrastructure and cyclists that can help as well. 
but it, it's a driver issue. And um, it even got me thinking about how many times we're talking about cars versus bikes, uh, cars with bikes versus drivers and cyclists, you know, like the human to human element. Totally agreed. Like it's, it's just so hard to say that a person driving a car interacted with a person riding a bicycle. Well, that but, driver yeah, tried to run is. me over, not that car tried to run me over, you know, it's, right. it's, right. uh, now maybe, maybe yeah. if it's, uh, an autonomous vehicle, uh, level four or five, that would be a different discussion. But, um, so, so with tech, you're not the first company to put, uh, uh, tech specifically using, uh, sensing on, on, on bicycles. And I always like to shout like original OG bike tech is putting brakes on bicycles and then, yeah. uh, and then helmets. So let's, let's not forget about that. And and many of our guests talk about asphalt concrete or great safety products. So sometimes it's easy to get caught in the zeros and ones and, and the solder that we use to put together our, our products, which we love. But, um, so Garmin clearly has a, a great product out there, the Varia. And I think is, is looked at as like the, in my mind is like one of the first products that kind of empowers cyclists to have a sense of what's coming up from behind them and, and be able to, um, take notice and, and, and have some, uh, better interactions with the driver to, so that, that he or she would know. So I'm curious from your perspective, uh, I mean, Varya has been out there even before we started your company. So I'm curious about like what they got right and how did they, create an opportunity for, for Velo AI to advance even further. Yeah, absolutely. The Varia is a wonderful device. And if you, I, I don't think it has a big enough market for it to be officially counted, but like if you were to go and manually figure out like the net promoter score of the Varia, it's through the roof. You almost never see people complaining about the device unless it's like, oh, hey, I'd love it if it could go 10 hours rather than seven hours of battery. Mm. What they got right is it has extremely low, what we would call false negatives. The idea that there's a car approaching you from behind and it didn't detect it. And, you know, that means that it's like true positives are really good. And so when it tells you that, hey, there's a car behind you and here's how fast it's going, you trust it because time and time again, it captures every single car in its sensor range. And you're saying it it's, won't miss a car, right? So like basically with yeah. the Varia on, the car is not going to come whizzing around you and you're like, why didn't the thing beep at me? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And if, in the the automotive community and, and for drivers that are in cars that have the lane departure warnings with uh, the, 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 usually it's a, a yellow light that lights up on the side view mirrors, that, that was always a big issue is like if drivers stop checking blind spots, which I'm of the, I'm old enough to be of the check your blind spot generation. Uh, I, I would assume that you have to trust that you're not going to have a, a false negative. So if they're, if I'm checking a blind spot, I know, cause I'm looking, but if I'm looking for that yellow light, it's not there. And I come over and boom, there's a, a vehicle there. That's a problem. So like you're saying that on the, but you're taking that kind of same approach over to the bicycle side of it. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you really build up trust that it's not going to miss anything. Your question before was kind of where, where is there room for impro- improvement? I think a lot of that comes down to what would be called the false positive rate of does it ever inform you something's there and it's actually not there? Mm-hmm. Or are you riding in a group of people and it keeps chiming off of the bicyclists in your group saying, hey, there's something coming at you but it's actually just your friend. 
I think one last one is it, it actually comes down to the physics of radars. The radar on the Varia has a pretty wide view. So I think it's about like a hundred degree field of view. So about 50 degrees to the left, 50 degrees to the right, it'll see anything in that range. But radar, you know, in, in terms of raw physics, radar can only measure things radially. So if three lanes over, there's a car going 60 miles per hour, it's still going to pick up that car and it can't understand the angle that that car is traveling, that that car is moving in a way that there's no way it's, it's anywhere near to hitting you. Yeah, there's no threat. And because radar can just only measure the radial velocity. It thinks that it's still got a pretty large velocity coming straight at you. So you have these kind of false positives, which what that ends up doing is the more complicated of a traffic scenario you're in, the less useful the Varia becomes. Yeah. So um, in other words, if you are on a, a bike path, which is 10 feet away from the road, it will pick it up. But if you are on a bike path, you're probably not worried about it. Whereas if you are in the berm of a wide road, like in, in California, I've done a ride from San Diego to La Jolla. And what I really want to know is somebody gone over the white line and now they're into the berm. And that, so exactly. like, what's, what's my vulnerability? And if a car does uh, do what I'd love them to do, provided there's room to get over into the other lane. So if there's two lanes and then the berm, I'd love for them to pull over a lane like they would for uh, law enforcement or disabled vehicles. So like if there was the ability to know that somebody has acknowledged that you're there with some kind of a behavior that would be able to be uh, sensed and measured, then don't beep at me. And and it also kind of be cool to get a counter data to show behavior, uh, which I always give a plug to Dr. Fred Fang and Shambo and the work they do at U of M on this. But like that would be really cool to get that. And, and what you're saying is that radar as a, uh, from a physics perspective, can't do that alone. It needs, it needs more help. Right. You can, you can either go with much more expensive radar units, uh, or you can start augmenting it with other sensors. And yeah, so that's exactly what we're doing is we're, we've moved over to a camera as our primary sensor and, you know, using it similar to how the driver assistance system works on your car. It watches the road, it watches the lanes, and it can figure out in three dimensions where the car is. And not just this, like, is there something metal moving towards me? Mm -hmm. So with the, the rider experience, what do you have now? And how do you envision the rider experience uh, advancing in the future? Uh, so I, I like curious to kind of get your thoughts and, and also maybe just some of the open questions the industry has too, because it's clearly not settled. What we have now, we've been doing kind of beta testing for the last uh, year approximately. And we're in final stages of like really bringing out a much smaller uh, streamlined product version of this. But it's basically a sensor package, including camera and other sensors, uh, GPS, IMU, along with full computing stack. It can do all of its computation on board. So it's got like a, you know, a four core ARM processor and a um, a machine learning AI accelerator chip. And that's what really lets us bring the price point and the packaging down small enough that like we have something that's good enough to fit on a bike. Um, in terms of the user experience, you take this, you put it on the back of your bike and it's just sitting there watching. Um, users today, you know, manually record data when they want to. 
and can pull that data and kind of see what's coming off. But most of the user experience is, is also similar to the Varia, is that we believe that audio cues are really, really critical. And the more information you can give a user with audio alone, the better, because you're, you're out there to ride your bike. You don't want, want to be staring at a screen, constantly scanning what's going on. Like you're watching the road. So primarily it, it has these different chimes and beeps based upon what the car is doing behind you of like, Hey, there's a car back there. Don't forget about it. I, I'm tracking it. It's matching your speed. Oh, the car is sped up. I'm going to let you know that the car is accelerating. And then finally, okay, the car is now passing you, but you know, this is the level of severity of, of how closely they're going to pass you. That's kind of the audio user interface. In addition to that, we, we have built smartphone applications uh, in our kind of user studies with a lot of these urban utility commuters. Uh, most people nowadays are carrying their smartphone on their handlebars. So if we can add a little bit more situational awareness and again, designing the interface where all you need to do is just glimpse at it really, really quickly and get your eyes back on the road. That can give you a sense of like, okay, which car on the road, where are they? What's the threat level? Uh, things like that. And, you know, also give you confidence that the device is watching and sees things for you. I think that's a very critical thing of getting the user's trust, especially with mm-hmm. new technology. Yeah. The years ago, we were chatting about opportunities to have a two-way interaction between the the cyclist and the driver and the driver and the cyclist. And especially with uh, commercial vehicles or, or large equipment uh, and first responders as well, that they're supposed to, I always say this, they're, all, they're supposed to go through the red light. And um, I think that for products that can detect the level of vulnerability, I think there's an opportunity with uh, the latest and greatest for in-vehicle, which obviously at Valtech Mobility, we do a lot of work there to communicate back to that cyclist and provide that that nod that we got you. And it could just be as simple as clearing an intersection or coming up to um, a semi-protected uh, crossing and knowing that they see you and they got you, where Right now, uh, I think you're going to have to do this when you start having vehicles that are are driven sometimes by a computer and not a human, uh, because today it's we're coming up. And even when, when I roll up to a four way, I still want to make sure that I got eyes from a driver. But if there's no driver, right. you know, how do you how do you get that confirmation that they got you? Because even though I know I have the right of way, I, I I'm going to be I'd rather be like yielding to someone than getting run over. You know what I mean? I want to make sure that, um, that, and there, there's definitely a, there's a lot of advocacy push about the, it's the driver's fault. And I, I, I take a a quite different approach to this from a, from a user experience set is that if everybody does what they're supposed to do, then we're going to have a lot less incidents, but just because you're right, doesn't mean it's what you should be doing and whether you're a driver or a cyclist and job one is to stay upright. So, um, I mean, it's unfortunate, but at the end of the day, like you can't just be like, well, I'm supposed to be here. I'm just going to do this and and take that risk factor. So I think from an experience perspective, that two ways, probably something that we could be working on, uh, in the near future. Yep, absolutely. The data you mentioned about people will, will turn on into some, some data recording. So what data is important and, and who cares about this? And, um, you know, how do you guys see data helping the overall community for a number of stakeholders? 
Yeah, I think this is one area where we can really add a lot of value compared to existing tech that's out there. I think one of the big problems with both pedestrian and cyclist safety on the road is that we just don't have enough data of what's happening. Generally, you know, obviously fatalities on the road are reported and get reported on. But unfortunately, close calls and, uh, you know, minor injuries, there just isn't enough information flowing back to the powers that be that like, this is a huge concern. And so I think that's one thing that we can do, given that every single one of these devices is kind of like a dash cam uh, recording your your bicycling experience. There's an opportunity to to share that data back with municipalities, with local organizations, with with the drivers of cars in ways to hopefully make make drivers better, make our roads better and so forth. I, I will do one plug. One of our biggest investors is a Pittsburgh-based foundation, the RK Mellon Foundation. And they made a social impact investment in us, focusing on this idea that we'll be able to bring these really, you know, low-cost consumer-level devices into communities and help inform infrastructure changes. Mm-hmm. So imagine, you know, if you have a thousand of these devices in the city, tracking more than just GPS. You know, mm-hmm. GPS is critical. That's where the bicyclists are going. That's what companies today are using. But now we're able to add to that with a lot more information about what are the close calls? Where are the drivers? You know, the people driving cars driving way faster than the speed limit. But also where are the choke points where, frankly, the bicyclists don't have any other option to maybe get on a really busy road mm-hmm. for two blocks yeah. to connect up two things. And that's that's a very common thing for bicyclists where you you choose a route, which is totally safe, totally safe, totally safe. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to die. And then totally safe, totally safe. Yeah, that's a big thing we've seen in, in Michigan where yeah. it's the local DOT versus state DOT. And right. it's not federal. We haven't seen that federal. It's really other than a railroad crossing or something like that. But it, it's really the here where MDOT is like, well, we can't do anything here because that's MDOT. And right. and then the communities, there, there's been some challenges too where uh, I live in Ferndale, uh, work in Royal Oak. We're straddled by a monster freeway that's dug out of the earth called 696. And I mean, we have the amazing bike routes on both both cities, Royal Oak and Ferndale. But going between one and the other, there's really only three spots to do it. And uh, the worst the worst one to do this is actually on Woodward, our, our main M1 area. And it, and that's for that same reason. It's like totally chill, totally chill. Like, oh my God, something's going to happen. Or you put puts me, I rode on a sidewalk last night, which I rarely do. I couldn't tell you the last time I rode on a sidewalk because of a train incident and construction. And I'm thinking, oh my God, like, Am I going to, it was getting on the side of dark and, and there's other hazards for me running into a pedestrian on a sidewalk versus something else. And now mind you, I'm going, I'm going to guess 12 miles an hour or less, yeah. but it's, it's still like, I, like we are not supposed to be on the sidewalks. You know what I mean? That's, it's not safe for us, not safe for, for other RV or use out there, but you, we, sometimes we get pushed there because it's better that than ending up on a on Woodward Avenue for anyone knows in Detroit. And it's, that, that, that's a tough spot. So if you could, if you could be the ways of uh, like kind of like figuring out where all the traffic is, but if you're the ways of bike safety of like where the biker cyclists are going and where, where the, where the vulnerability is and, and give someone a way to do that, that would just be smashingly cool. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's also easy for local planners to kind of point out some of these using existing data that's there. But I think the hope is that we can make this a lot more automated mm-hmm. and really flow the data very quickly and also capture these near misses that, frankly, nothing happens with near miss data. Yeah. Um, you know, usually the rider, the person on the bike doesn't report it. The driver certainly doesn't report it. And so we can we can capture these in a lot better fidelity than what is there today and, you know, share that information out, which is which is part of our mission. There's been some uh, interesting topics here, again, going to Michigan where I, I live and I know the area, but I imagine this has been similar type conversations around the U.S. is cycling infrastructure comes in, it takes out one of the, the lanes for vehicles and it makes it more dangerous for everybody. So when we used to have two lanes available on a road that's not used very much, a cyclist could be on the far right of the right-hand lane and a vehicle uh, still has room to go around the cyclist in its own lane. When there's these traffic calming measures, whether it's traffic furniture like the islands or you end up putting a bi-directional bike lane, for folks that are commuting and they, uh, I, I would actually, I don't know this Clark, but you probably have, maybe have, or will have some data on this, but average speeds for commuters where I think of the bi-directional bike lane is, is someone taking their family up. They got the, they're maybe, maybe like, it's not the e-bike rider or someone like myself going 18 to 20 miles an hour. It's the rolling 12. And you know, w- when you're going that fast in many places, it even says, if you're on a bike path, it's like bike path speed limits were like 15. So if I'm going, 18 to 20 e-bike riders I know are going that fast because you know, you're out there, you see them and as they should be because they're using their product as a commuting product. It's uh, taking those lanes down for all the right intentions can actually have negative consequences, but there's really no way to objectively measure that and, and come back. So I'm curious uh, if, if your products can start to address some of those questions as well as like how effective are these these uh, positive intent solutions uh, in, in actually reducing safety uh, concerns versus just pushing more vulnerable situations because of the cyclist ultimately isn't going to use that, that bike lane or that, that bike path, then it just puts them on even a more, more vulnerable area. Yeah. These are exactly the kind of sort of like data science studies we really want to get into once we have enough data. Uh, right now we, we just have a, you know, our beta testers and that's not really enough data to sort of get these patterns out. But yeah, very, very early in kind of ideation on company ideas, I was very drawn to this idea of not only where are the threats now for safety, but what's the evolution of our roads? So also during the pandemic, you know, some streets near me got turned into what we call in Pittsburgh a neighbor way, where we took a low speed street and we said this is the safe route for pedestrians and bicyclists we're going to do things to try to slow down traffic mm-hmm. by adding more curb cuts adding little tiny roundabouts in what would normally be like a residential four-way stop and i think it had positive effects but then it also has negative effects like we actually turn those into yields because you know for us bicyclists in states where we don't have the idaho stop it's very nice to have a yield sign. You can just continue to go through. And what is the Idaho stop for us non-cyclist listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Idaho stop basically means that uh, bicyclists can treat a stop sign at an empty intersection as if it's a yield sign. And, you know, I'm certainly guilty of this, of treating stop signs as Idaho stops, even though they're not, you know, legal in Pennsylvania where I am. But 
you know, so we, we converted the street to all yield signs. But now what I see is I see cars just blow through at 30 oh, miles per hour. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. but the cross traffic is the bike route. Does that actually make me feel safer? And it's, it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. And I would love to kind of get into what does the data show us and use that data to then inform the next set of changes that we should be making to make it safer, hopefully for everyone. Yeah. And uh, another key element of the Idaho rule is that red lights can be treated as stop signs if it's uh, and and I don't know if they still call this, but he's called a dead red, where as a cyclist, you approach an intersection that doesn't have cameras and may use uh, an old, um, is it, uh, Clark, you mean it is, it's like electromagnetic loop. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's sensing, basically sensing the a car is there where a cyclist won't trigger that. And it allows you to uh, proceed through a, a, a red light that We'll just never turn right. green for and that those sorts of uh, we we in the uh, sports cycling we call that traffic furniture, but it, it's it's the same thing where you think it's good, but then what ends up happening is a car, uh, a driver of a car, it puts them a lot closer to you as a cyclist. Where if that wasn't there, they would have a lot more room to go around. And uh, but then there's other things that we've we've seen in studies. So getting rid of double yellow lines correlates with providing more more space to go around the cyclist and also probably less pissed off drivers so i can't tell you how many people i know that oh yeah i'm a cyclist why are you guys on the road get on the sidewalk and it's and i think to myself well if there wasn't a double yellow and they felt more comfortable going around would they just go around and not be yelling at us to get on the sidewalks so it's it's uh which weirdly enough still happens those kind of using data to show behaviors and also having some video clips where I feel the, to justify to the residents of a community. We're a very cycling friendly community here in Ferndale. We do have a lot of very vocal, get rid of the cyclist people here, which is bizarre. Like it's, I'm, probably, I'm sure it's a vocal minority, but I think sometimes having a video, like a little dash cam of this thing going, well, this is what happened here. And uh, it, it just puts it, puts a presence on this. And I usually stick to uh, when there's an incident and drivers have no problem telling me how they feel about me being on the roadway. Uh, I just usually will just say thank you. And you know, if I was your your son or or grandson, would you still have done what you did? And then they usually roll up the window <laughs> and speed away. So um, trying to put more of a personal touch, I think there's there is a social element beyond just the science that I, I think has a lot of value by having this sort of information to really changed the way that the perception and the behaviors are happen from drivers in a community. So around um, the DOT stakeholders, so do you, is there, is there data frameworks today? So the, you mentioned the fatality database that's called FARS. And in our experience working in this, it's been a few years is that uh, fortunately there aren't that many compared to other fatality on roadway for, for uh, people, occupants of vehicles or pedestrians, the number counts a lot lower and, that's not a bad thing, but the taking the data and without near misses is, is, is a problem because we don't have that data. Is there a framework set already, or are you guys going to have to partner up with other industry companies and competitors to say, here's a framework for sharing data on VRE vulnerability, near misses, and those sort of things? Yeah. I mean, I think anything that's out there today is is pretty spotty, most likely this this sort of crowdsourced a set of videos of near misses. So I think we are excited about working with others and building this true data set that is geo-referenced and time-referenced and able to kind of track these numbers over time. 
Is there a, a place where this is going to happen? Like, is this going to be like an OSM thing or like, a, like, do you have any feelings about this or is that uh, maybe possibly a call to action to the listeners is that if folks are interested, if there's not a place to share this, to perhaps get in touch with you guys on this, but I'm kind of curious where, like if you have other GIS people or other data people, um, I know there's a number of safety data companies out there. Like what, where, where are you going to go have this conversation? Where's this, where's the right spot for that conversation and, and that documentation to be held? Yeah. Super interesting. We haven't quite started on our side because we're in the, the thick of things, kind of product development of just getting the safety product out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, I think it's a really good time to actually start that conversation and figure out what should we do? Um, of course we were imagining, you know, contacting municipalities and nonprofits in in regions where our devices are going to be operating. Uh, we have really great connections here in the city of Pittsburgh with both our local bike and pet advocacy group, Bike Pittsburgh, as well as our you know local city government uh, department of mobility. But I think there's there's an opportunity to do a lot more. So yeah, I would definitely encourage the readers to reach out. Cool, very cool. Uh... You mentioned law enforcement. So kind of my last question before I wrapping up here is, uh, is there any way we can make this thing like a two-wheeled traffic camera red light machine so that when uh, folks aren't doing what they're supposed to do, this could be a revenue source for the city and, and uh, penalize folks for driving like idiots? Um, I just wonder if that's uh, that's an option. Um, I mean, obviously everybody makes mistakes, but uh, it'd be great to Man, imagine if there was tech to know if someone was texting and they blow past you and you could then they just end up with a traffic ticket like you get when you roll into a, a Royal Oak parking meter. It's got the cameras it knows it does all that automatically. Yeah, I, I think that comes down to, you know, once the tech exists, going after these partnerships with with the law enforcement organizations and so forth. Like I, I for example, didn't know until a couple months how red light cameras worked. Cities don't operate red light cameras. Red light cameras operate on a bounty system where mm-hmm. a private company puts up the camera and basically claims the bounty. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing that's probably how your your fancy new Royal Oak parking meters work too. It's a provider, um, yeah. And even in Ferndale, they outsource to a company. I forget the name of the, of the company, but the, it's their employees that drive around. And I mean, they are on you like you wouldn't believe. Like if you're there 15 seconds after your parking's up, you're going to have a $35 ticket on your car. So um I guess, I mean, there's probably context and severity and they probably want to flip it and say, well, I want to, I want to ticket you Clark for not putting a foot down at every intersection, right. even if it's in the middle of the night and dark yeah. and, and it's raining and you must stop. And, you know, it's like, the, the, I it, mean, I, there's, there's of course a balance to strike here. We don't need to go full, full big brother, uh, nanny state approach. But I think, I think the biggest thing is that there's a lot happening on our roads that there's just no evidence that it happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can give a little more evidence of where the roads are being unsafe, where the bicyclists or the pedestrians are risking their lives unnecessarily and and work to really, really make things better for everyone. So obviously we're, we're very focused on how to inform infrastructure changes, because I think that is a very valuable piece that cities only have so much money to spend to improve curb cuts mm-hmm. or to improve bike lanes or improve roadways. Uh, if we can form that spending in a in a way that kind of reflects all users of the road, that would be great. But yeah, certainly if there's you know a an interesting aspect in terms of tying this back to improving driver behavior through existing mechanisms like tickets, 
that's certainly valuable. Um, I think it's I think it's Tom Vanderbilt's book, Traffic, says that really one of the biggest problems with traffic is that we don't have enough feedback for drivers. Like as a driver, you can almost do whatever you want. And so long as you don't cause a crash, uh, you're very unlikely to get ticketed. And maybe that's one of the things that's going to really change in the coming decades mm. with more intelligent infrastructure on our streets. Interesting. So, uh, well, thank you. I like to ask all of our listeners, what what shows, podcasts, newsletters, trade events keep you in the know uh, that that you would uh, like to plug? And we'll put links in the show notes. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm coming a lot from the autonomous vehicle world. So I still follow all of all of the old companies I've been, I've been worked at, as well as kind of others in the industry. So like, if you don't follow the Waymo, Cruise, Aurora, uh, they're really, you know, doing interesting work. And it's just going to be, you know, unique to see how, how the eventual rollout of the tech looks. Um, in the bike world, you know, I still consider ourselves pretty new to the bike world. Like this is my first time working within the greater bike industry. I will say we went to the Philly Bike Expo last year, and that was a fantastic show. It was a lot of fun to meet a ton of people in the industry, both just, you know, people making trinkets for your bikes all the way up to the most advanced bikes and bike tech out there. And we're, we're, of course, looking forward to other places we should go. Later this month, we are joining the uh, Silicon Valley Bike Summit. And I think that will also be an interesting conversation hmm. with a lot of people who bike commute and bike for enjoyment and just want to stay safe. And last question, how can our listeners get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. You can find me on LinkedIn, Clark Haynes with Velo AI, uh, or feel free to just send me an email. Uh, in fire it off to Clark at velo.ai. Awesome. Well, Clark, thanks for having you on the show. And uh, it's it's good seeing folks still, still innovating and pushing us forward. And that was Clark Haynes, founder and CEO of Velo AI. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. Thanks again for listening and see you next time in the bike lane.